Our passage is just going to be three verses today, verses 13 to 15. And this is a transition section in Paul's letter to the early churches. Up till now in the letter, he's been explaining the, the gospel, how we're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. Um, but now he's transitioning into how that changes our lives once we believe the gospel, once the Lord changes us by his grace. And so we're going to get right into it. I'm going to read the passage. First, though, I'm going to start with verse 1 just to connect to his train of thought before the part we're going to read. I'm going to read 1 and then 13 to 15 uh, and see where Paul goes with it. For freedom... Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Verse 13, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the ancient text that still speaks to us today. This is your living word. It's as relevant now as it was then. It addresses the issues of our hearts. It shows us the way to life through Jesus Christ. And so... We ask that the Holy Spirit would open our hearts to perceive what you want us to see here, to do your work in our lives where there needs to be change, but also encouragement. We thank you for your empowering spirit who not only illuminates this text to us, but helps us to follow it. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. For the past few years, I've been corresponding with a believer who is in prison for a crime that he committed. It's a long story about how he got there, but through interacting with him, I've learned a bit about what prison life is like. So a prisoner's days are regimented and controlled according to strict protocols. Um, they don't leave their cell without permission. They have to go back into their cell immediately if they're ordered to do so. Um, they eat, they work, they sleep at prescribed intervals. They're allowed only a few possessions. They have no access to the Internet. They have phone calls that are limited to 15 minutes on a public phone in their, in their cell area. And while you're on the phone talking with them, you hear this interruption every few minutes saying, this call is from a federal prison and is subject to monitoring and recording. So you just have this sense that everything is tightly controlled, being watched all the time. Life in prison is like that. But then there comes a day when the prisoner is released. Freedom has arrived. And so that person is faced with a choice, what do I do with my freedom? Now that I'm released from all the controls, how am I going to live? Uh, what, what am I going to do with my time? Do I go back to the way I was living, a life of crime, or do I, do I walk on a new path? That's the choice they have to make. In a different realm, we have a choice like that to make as well. 
Paul says to believers in Christ, you were called to freedom, brothers. We'll talk about what that freedom is. If we really understand it, it's as freeing as walking out of a physical prison. And even better than that. But it also comes with the same decision. What will I do with my freedom that I've been called into as a believer? How will I live in the freedom that the gospel gives me? And Paul has an answer. He says, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. That's what we do with our freedom in Christ. We're going to be talking about these things this morning. The title of the message is Free to Love, Free to Serve. That's what we're called to do. So let's just start by talking about the freedom mentioned in verse 13. You were called to freedom, brothers. What exactly is that freedom that he's talking about? Well, prior to this passage, Paul explained that each of us can be held captive or imprisoned or enslaved by one of two things. One is the oppressive task of trying to be good enough to earn God's acceptance and favor. And the other is the ultimately futile task of trying to find fulfillment and peace without God. But trusting in Christ as Savior frees us from both of these. We read, we read verse 1 because it sums all this up for us. And here it is again. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. So what he's saying is there's a yoke of slavery. We could call it captivity. We could call it imprisonment that the believers in the Galatian churches were under before they trusted Christ. And then there was another yoke of slavery they were being tempted to uh, be under again after they trusted Christ. That's why he says, do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. The first slavery that they had been under, we would call a irreligious slavery. I'll give that the name to it irreligious slavery. That's when they were pagan members of the Roman Empire. They were worshiping idols. They were pursuing happiness, uh, either by like going hard after pleasure as much as they can get, or going after virtues, wisdom, things like that. But that's what they were doing. They were doing that all without God in their life. And so they were really slaves to finding happiness and meaning in life that way. And it's a kind of slavery because, like the preacher in Ecclesiastes says, um, sooner or later you're going to find out that no matter how much pleasure you get, no matter how much wisdom, uh, virtue, or whatever, it's never enough. It's not going to satisfy. Because even when you get what you want, it's not as good the second or the third time. You know, It has this diminishing returns even when you get what you want. And besides that, things break, plans get ruined, we get injured, we get sick. Eventually, death steals everything away from us. That's not freedom. It's slavery to something that in the, in the end makes you say, like the preacher in Ecclesiastes, it is all vanity and striving after wind. That was their first slavery, irreligious slavery. But the second one, the one these church people were being enticed to go after by some teachers, We'll, we'll call that religious slavery. That's when we believe we need to obey the moral commands of God in order to be accepted by God, 
to be forgiven our sins, to enter into the realm of his blessing and promises. And that's slavery because, as Paul pointed out earlier, earlier, if you're going to go that route, you have to keep the whole law. You have to do every single commandment all of your life if that's how you're going to get God's acceptance and blessing. And there's no way we can do that. We just don't have it in us. So that's a slavery. Besides that, no amount of good works can make up for the sins we've already committed because what does Romans 6 say? The wages of sin is death. It takes death to atone for sin, not better performance. So there's no hope in that direction at, at all. That's slavery. You're never going to get out from the condemnation of breaking God's law. But here's the good news. Jesus brings freedom from both of those forms of slavery. From where it's captivity and imprisonment. to He brings freedom from all that, from either kind. He frees us from irreligious slavery by replacing vanity and striving after wind with life of meaning and purpose. You get to know and be loved by the God of the universe personally. And unlike everything else in the world, he doesn't disappoint. He doesn't get boring. He's not mundane. There's no diminishing rewards for knowing him. It actually gets better and better and better. The more you press in, the more you know, the more you see, it gets better, not worse. We're called into that life with him. After 11 chapters of explaining the grace of God in salvation, Paul said in Romans 11.33, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways! You say things like that if you're going deep with Christ. You just go, your mind is blown the more you go into it. He's not like the, the diminishing returns of the world. He frees us from irreligious slavery. He also frees us from religious slavery because he removes the oppressive burden of having to be good enough to get into that loving relationship with God. Jesus lived a life that's good enough to be acceptable to God. And by faith, God counts that perfect life to us as if we had lived it ourselves. And his death on the cross bore the curse for our sins. And it atoned for our wrongdoing. It satisfied our prison sentence, we might say. And in the place of punishment, we get eternal life in a renewed world of never-ending peace and joy. So, no one who has these things going for them needs to complete their bucket list. That's one implication you know we go after so much like i have a desire i want to climb all 58 14ers i'm nine away from the end but i don't have to finish the list really i've got something way better already already i'm tasting of it and it's going to get better and better the best is yet to come that's true for every believer in christ we don't need to go after the irreligious slavery nor do we have to go after the religious slavery because christ has paid the penalty for our sin we are right with god we are loved by god called to be saints we belong to jesus christ all these realities in romans 1 that's there and the best is yet to come for us 
<clears throat> That's what our freedom is. It feels like no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No threat hanging over you from God. It means your life journey, even though it's going to be fraught with trials, sadness, afflictions, it's also going to be filled with help in trouble and comfort for the afflicted. God will be with you in all of it. He has promised to be a father who has taken you on as his responsibility. It means your life is secure in, in his loving hands and nothing can ever happen to you that will not work for your ultimate eternal good. That's security. That's the freedom we're called to in Christ. And that's better than being released from a physical prison because this never ends. I know that some people think that becoming a Christian means giving up your freedom. It's actually the opposite. It's the only way to have it. So we're called to freedom, but like the person who walks out of prison, we have to decide what we're going to do with it. How are we going to live as a believer in Jesus? Well, Paul begins by telling us what not to do with our freedom. And he goes on to say this in verse 13, Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Not as an opportunity for the flesh. So through faith in Christ... God has freed you from condemnation and futility, but he hasn't freed you to do this, which is to give your flesh an opportunity. Now, what does that mean? Well, the flesh is a term in the New Testament. It refers to the remaining part of your life that hasn't been transformed yet by the Spirit. You might call it the old self. Or indwelling sin. In Romans 7.18, Paul says, I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. So the flesh is the realm of no good thing living. <laughs> the non-renewed old habits, desires, thoughts, attitudes that have not yet come under submission to Christ. So when Paul says, don't let your freedom be an opportunity for the flesh, he's saying, don't let those old sinful ways get an opportunity to rule you again. Don't indulge yourself in sin just because you've been forgiven your sins. You haven't been freed to sin. You've been freed not to sin. <laughs> it's the principle that we can turn our liberty into license like the person who's let out of prison after years of tight controls. He might have the thought, well, now I can do whatever I want. You know, nobody's telling me what to do anymore. I'm free to go wherever, do whatever. And we can be tempted that way too. We can be tempted that once the controls are off, we can do whatever we want, right? I've used this illustration before, but it's like being told at the beginning of a college semester that you will get an A in the class even if you never study and you fail every test. Like, what would you do if that's what you were told at the beginning of your class? You're going to get an A. It doesn't matter what you do. Well, I know what I'm going to do. I'm not going to study. <laughs> I mean, why, why put all the hard work in if it doesn't affect your grade? 
That's what I would go. It's that temptation to turn liberty into license. That's a real temptation for believers who find freedom in Christ, or at least it will be if you really understand the freedom that we get from being in Christ. If we really believe that God counts us perfectly righteous with Christ's righteousness apart from our works, if we really believe there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ, we're not subject to the ultimate penalty of not keeping the law, if we really think these things, then we would think, then why should I keep the law? Why should I obey the commands of God? Because some of them are hard, like love your neighbor and pray for those who persecute you. Or be patient in tribulation and not grumble and complain. Or what Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That doesn't sound fun. What I've got to deny myself. If God accepts me and he loves me, even if I fail to do these things, then why should I bother? Some of us might be so used to being motivated by fear or guilt that we wouldn't know why we should obey God if the threats were removed. I certainly felt that way for a long time. I lived for probably 15 years of my Christian life as if my passing grade before God really did depend on how well I performed the Christian life. It took time. It took 15 years for me to realize, it wasn't until I went to pastor's college and heard the gospel afresh from Jerry Bridges where it started to dawn on me. I have Christ's righteousness. <laughs> it is finished. The atonement happened. I don't have to atone for the sin myself. That's where the light started to come on. But it was, an it was a temptation, and it's still a temptation. Here's the reality. If you have the righteousness of Christ counted to you by faith, you pass the class of life with a 100% perfect score even though you still have the rest of it to live. You already got the grade, no matter how much you fail. You're counted as having loved your enemies, as having been patient in all tribulation, as having been a perfect parent, a perfect child, done everything else that God commands in the Scriptures because it's the perfect score that Jesus gave you. You receive it by faith. And that's why Paul has to say about our freedom, don't use it as an opportunity for the flesh. Because if we really get our security in God's love and in the eternal life that he gives us, we will ask the question, then what does it matter what I do? Why shouldn't I just indulge myself in whatever my heart desires? Why do the hard things if it doesn't count towards my grade? Well, here's the paradox about the Christian life, one of them. It's that our freedom in Christ actually motivates true obedience to God's commands? Because true obedience is not doing something just because we'll be in trouble if we don't do it. It's doing something because we love to do it. Because we love to please the one who gave us the command. Parents know this. If you ask a child to take out the garbage, they could do it in one of two ways. They could complain all the way to the garage or wherever you keep your big storage can. And they don't want to do it. They make you know that you don't want to do it, that they don't want to do it. 
That's one way they could do it. Or they could do it gladly and say yes and do it and cheerful, right? Which one is real obedience? (laughs) It's the second one. The first one is forced compliance against your will. The second one is obedience from the heart. And only the gospel of freedom from sin's power and penalty, the only, only the realization of God's great mercy to us in Christ can produce glad obedience, willing obedience. I love to do your law. It is my meditation all the day. Like the psalmists say, the renewed believer says that. In Psalm 119.97, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. He or she knows the reality of Romans 7.12. The law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The Apostle John said in 1 John 5.3, His commandments are not burdensome. They aren't burdensome if Christ has set you free from fear and guilt and futility has set you free from fear as the motivation for obedience, and instead he makes it a joy to obey God. So what does it look like in practice, though? If we are called to freedom in Christ, if we don't fall back into self-indulgent, sinful patterns of life, what will we do with ourselves? And this is what we do, which is at the end of verse 13. Through love, serve one another. Through love, serve one another. Now, here's something to notice right away. Isn't it interesting that the first application that Paul thinks of with what we do with our freedom instead of opportunity for the flesh, the first thing he thinks of is how we treat other people. Through love, serve one another. Don't give in to the flesh. Instead, serve one another. It's about how we treat each other. That's the first place it goes when we start to live in the freedom of the gospel, that's a reminder that our vertical relationship with God should affect our horizontal relationships with each other. Like those two things are connected. They should, the one should lead to the other. Uh, when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? Singular. He said, it's love God and love your neighbor. That's two things. What he's saying is, they flow from the same source, Right? Your love for God is going to lead to loving people or something short-circuited somewhere. But like they're a package deal. That's the great commandment. You're going to do both. You're going to love God. You're going to love your neighbor. So what do we do with our freedom from condemnation and futility through love? Serve one another. Now here's another paradox in the Christian life. This Greek word behind serve has been used three other times in this letter, and every time it's used, it's translated be enslaved, except here where it's called serve. But you could retranslate that as through love, be enslaved to one another. The paradox is freedom in Christ makes us willing slaves to others. Not in the sense of being owned and controlled and mistreated, all the things we associate with slavery, but in the sense of serving somebody else's interests ahead of your own, counting them more important than yourself. We voluntarily do that with our freedom. We voluntarily enslave ourselves in a way, become servants. That's a paradox. And the Christian life is just radically different, isn't it, than than our that our minds would 
make up <laughs> on our own. <laughs> we wouldn't do things this way. We wouldn't make it that wor- work like that. It's just radically different from the way we naturally do things, but that's because it reflects the one that we follow, that being Jesus Christ. He is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. The one, the righteous one, God's servant, who made many to be accounted righteous, bearing their iniquities. He said in John 15, 13, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. Jesus showed us what real freedom is, which is not to indulge your fleshly desires, just as slavery to self, but true freedom looks like through love, serve one another as one who has received the greatest love in the world. He frees us to love and to serve, to look outside of ourselves instead of always inward. It's like the freedom that a firefighter has after going through all that training that they go through to, have a, to get that job. Before they had the training, they weren't free to rescue people out of burning buildings. Didn't have the ability to do that. But after they go through all the training, after they submit themselves to sleeping at the fire station and working all these crazy long shifts and staying in shape, then they're ready, they're free to rescue people out of burning buildings. And they love to do it, which is why they signed up for the job. Likewise, Christ has freed us to go outward, (laughs) to go and actually be rescuers in his name whether that's bringing them the gospel of the freedom of, of Christ or, or, or things that are on the way to it, just showing, displaying God's love, His sacrificial love to other people. He frees us to do that by releasing us from the pressure of having to work really hard to be good or to try and find happiness some way. Those things that consume us. He's like, you don't need to do that. I'm freeing you to go outward. And and look at the people around you and say, opportunities here to do what Jesus did and and to love doing it. And verse 14 says, when you're doing that, you're actually fulfilling the whole law of God, it says. He says, the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is another paradox of the Christian life. Once you're freed from the obligation to keep the whole law of God is when you're free to actually fulfill the whole law. (laughs) By loving your neighbor as yourself, that love and that action of service is is the heart of the law. And only freedom in Christ from having to keep the whole law makes you fulfill the whole law. Because now you're doing it gladly. Now the impulse is not fear. Now it's joy, love, gratitude. Paradox. So what does it look like in the day-to-day to serve one another through love? Well, you, you can look at any commandment in the Bible that has to do with another person, and that's part of it. That command is a way of demonstrating love. It could be your speech. Okay, we're not going to gossip. We're not going to slander. We're not going to revile each other. All those kinds of things. It's speech, speech commands. It can be your gifting. God has given each one gifts for the common good. You're an administrator. You're mercy. You're a teacher. You're whatever. 
It's for other people. It's to serve them. It's, that's what love looks like, using those things. It's sharing your time, sharing your money, um, sharing your energy, doing things for one another. We got all of that. But here's the thing I think we should highlight. Serving one another through love is a lifestyle, not an event. Here's what I mean by that. Loving your neighbor as yourself, which is what Paul is using to refer to through love serving one another. Loving somebody as yourself is an ongoing commitment and ongoing disposition because nobody loves themselves part-time. Nobody loves themselves only on Wednesdays. You know, or, you know, I've put it on my calendar. Next month I'm going to do that. We always are ready to take care of ourselves. We, we fundamentally love ourselves. Nobody has to teach us that. So serving one another that way, as if, you're, as if you love them like yourself, that's an ongoing lifestyle. It's a posture. It's a readiness to help when we are in a position to do something. So we don't think things like, you know, I already served in the children's ministry this month, so I'm good till next month. <laughs> I don't need to do any more serving until next month when it's my turn. Like, we don't think that. We don't think that way. Uh, we're not just checking off boxes. No, it's a, it's a lifestyle, an ongoing posture that I'm going to love people like I love myself. I'm going to genuinely care. I'm going to be open to what they need. Um, to put it another, another way, serving others with your time, your talents, your treasure, it's part of what your life is about, not just something that you put into your life sometimes. Um, it's, it's what we make room for in our schedules, even put into our schedules. When we're planning our week out, our month, our year, it's, it's, it's something that we're going to make sure is in there. Because it's not just something that we, that we do if we have time, it's what we do with our time. I know that when I get to planning in life, all the stuff that I want to do and all the stuff I need to do, that gets scheduled right away. Um, but the free person in Christ plans in other things also. Like taking care of a child through safe families. Or responding to that need that comes out over the church newsletter. Uh, or having someone over for hospitality, or just leaving some margin in your life so that you can respond to the unexpected. And I know most of us are frazzled with life, with so, so much going on, and we can feel like there's no room for anyone else or anything else in our life, and there's certainly seasons where that's true, but you know the thing about seasons is that they can become year-round. <laughs> they, they turn into habits. And serving self becomes a habit. It's habit-forming. But God calls us to freedom so that we can serve each other through love, uh, knowing that He has us and that we matter to Him and He's taking care of us. God's creating a new community that's resisting self-serving and moving toward others. He's building a church that has this beautiful, paradoxical, miraculous freedom that's just the opposite of self-indulgence. 
That's what a gospel culture looks like. That's a, a community that's a joy to be a part of, and it shows the quality and work of our Savior. And we want to press into that together, because if we don't, if we give opportunity for the flesh, we create a different kind of community that nobody wants to be a part of. And that's the red flag that Paul raises at the end of the passage. Here's what he says in verse 15. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. To me, that seemed to come out of nowhere. Um, it sounds like something you'd say about a National Geographic film on the plains of Africa, you know, with hyenas attacking a lion and a lion attacking the hyenas and like everybody's biting and devouring. Like, where does this come from? What's the problem here? Uh, what's, what's this supposed to communicate? I think the words bite and devour and consume are instructive. That they point to a specific habit of the flesh to use up other people for your own personal gain. Use them up. That's where the word consumer comes from, right? We consume um, I think about what Jesus said about, he said this about the scribes in Mark twelve forty, that they devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. And then that's followed by the story of the widow who gave all that she had to live on, her last two copper coins into the treasury. And I think that the contrast of those two things exposes the hearts of the scribes that they would even take the last two cents from a widow if it would be to their own advantage. They would devour her house even as they pretend to be so holy. I think that's the orientation of our natural flesh. We, we tend to use up other people for our own gain. We only value people for what they can do for us. And if they don't do it, or if they stand in the way of getting what we want, we bite. I, I read what I thought was a very insightful comment in a book called You're Only Human by Kelly Capek. And he was commenting on how youth and young adults don't really know if the people in their friend groups really like them or not. And I think his observation applies to groups of any kind. He said, even with friends, many people sense that these are more like tribal packs that hold together only to the extent that each member keeps up their contribution. Failure to do so produces fear of rejection. You ever sense that in a group? That deep down, the friendship isn't based on just love for you, no matter what. It's based on what you can contribute. And if you don't contribute it, then you're out of here. Or I'm out of here. That's the opportunity for the flesh. The flesh is like that. The flesh thinks that way. Jesus came to, say, to change that. He came to build a community that loves because he first loved us. 1 John 4.19, where, where through love we serve each other and we don't just serve ourselves. And it can go downhill if we're not resting in this freedom of the gospel that we have in Christ. Churches can end up biting and devouring each other when this is missing. And that's why Paul raises the warning here for the Galatian churches. 
And maybe you've been in that situation yourself in a church. I know I have. There was a period of time where in our former church in Minnesota, and I was an elder there. This is 22, 23 years ago, um, I'm thinking. There was, a, there was a period of time where I was hoping that we would not have any visitors on a Sunday because of this bitter conflict that was going on in the church. Um, and what was happening was our church was making some moves towards joining the denomination of Sovereign Grace Churches. And, there, and I hadn't gone to the pastor's college yet. That was one of the things that was going to happen next. And so that's being talked about. And then there was a group of people who thought that was a very bad idea. And we should not do that. They were strongly against it. And they became very vocal publicly and privately. They formed a coalition that began meeting together um, to stop this. And there were some heated meetings that followed. There was a lot of sinful judgment and accusations said, you know, on the, in, on the free microphone. Um, and then Sundays got to be very tense. Like you didn't even want to go to church because of where everybody was kind of polarizing and sitting in different places and tension was thick. And before it was over, a third of the church left and most of them angry. And I just thought during that period, this is not how this is supposed to be. This isn't what Jesus came to build. And I didn't want any visitors to see it and think, that's the Christian church. That's where things can go. If we're not getting our joy in the freedom of the gospel and then making and pressing into serving one another through love, it can go that way. And that's why Paul raises the warning. The Lord doesn't want that to be our experience. He's called us to give to, to, to freedom, freedom from condemnation, from futility, to not give our flesh an opportunity so that we can through love serve one another. So let me just close with this. By God's grace, we're going to keep pressing in to the freedom of, that the gospel gives us. That's why we're going through Galatians. We've had a long soak in it, and it takes a long soak, and it's going to take more soaking. <laughs> it took me 15 years <laughs> to get it, and I was pressing in. I was already an elder, and I still didn't get it. It takes time, but we're going to keep soaking in it because we want our, our tank to be filled up with joy in Christ so that we have something to give out, so that we stop just being inward. We start moving towards each people, other people. Because gospel doctrine leads to gospel culture. When it's really taking root, it creates this environment that we all want to be in, where everybody is really for each other, sincerely. It's not a tribal pack. Um, so we're going to resist that. We're going to resist the temptation to be a tribal pack where you never know, uh, do people really care about me or not? Um, we're, we're not going to have, we're not going to pursue an Amazon Prime kind of Christianity, which is like, I want something from you, and if I don't get it in two days, I'm going to leave a bad review. You know, that's where it can go. We want to resist that. We want to press into, no, I want to serve other people out of love because I've been loved so well, forgiven so much. And so we're going to use our gifts of teaching and giving and mercy and administration and prophecy and the rest for the common good. And we're going to make room in our lives for things like hospitality and the inconvenient request for a ride or a meal, or we're going to substitute on a ministry team if somebody's sick. We're not going to give in to the flesh to just serve ourselves, 
We're going to be part of building and, and enjoying this beautiful community that Christ came to create, where there's the one another's going on, out of love. God helping us. <laughs> and if everyone's doing that, yes, good things come back to you, but the foundation isn't what you can do for me. The foundation is what Christ has already done for all of us. It's already happening, this kind of, this kind of life. May it continue to grow, <laughs> flourish, as we understand and experience our freedom in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that your, your plan for us, your will for us, it really is good and acceptable and perfect. Like this community that you're talking about here, that is amazing. Who wouldn't want to have that? Um, but it's only available one way, only through being freed from condemnation and futility through faith in Christ. I pray that's what everybody does here in this room, that we all press into that, and that by your transforming spirit, we will experience more and more the beautiful paradoxical community where we, where we let our freedoms go in order to serve one another, and we do it gladly. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.